Hello and welcome back for another episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omid Azami. In today's interview, I sat down with Dr. Ji-Yoon Kim at Disking Queen on Instagram, based in Seattle, Washington. This interview was recorded a few months ago prior to me heading over to Seattle to attend COIS. And I had the awesome pleasure of meeting up with both Dr. Kim and Brandon Walker at Possibilities on Instagram for brunch while I was there. We got to meet in person. They were nice enough to pick me up and take me out for brunch and drop me off. And it was great to meet up, meet up with them uh, while I was there. We ran to each other again at DIA a few days later where Dr. Kim taught a great session on injection overmolding technique which we talk about at length in this interview. As promised, I am trying to get back to a more regular schedule with posting up interviews and I'm working on redesigning the website and logo to freshen things up. The podcast has been a big part of my dental career so far and it has allowed me to form so many close friendships and find so many mentors who have helped me along the way. Dr. Kim is no exception. In this interview, we talk about several topics including injection overmolding restorative technique, how to stay hungry and to continue to grow as you progress through your dental career, and much, much more. Dr. Kim has been up to so much since we spoke in this interview. She has launched her own podcast along with Brandon Walker called Dental Disruptors. She has also launched the Disking Queen Academy and Institute of I.O. I will have a link for all of the above in the show notes for you guys to check out, and please do. The podcast is great. This week's interview is brought to you by my good friends at Ivoclar Vivident. Ivoclar Vivident is one of the world's leading and most innovative dental companies, offering a comprehensive range of products and systems that provide you with new opportunities in dentistry. For even more aesthetic and efficient results and better dental care for your patients. Making people smile is what they do. To find out more about Ivoclar and their products and education courses, please head over to ivoclarvivident.com.au. Again, that's ivoclarvivident.com.au with a link in the show notes. As always, if you've been enjoying listening to the Newbie Dentist podcast, please pass along the podcast to your friends, classmates, and colleagues. If you haven't already, please head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating and click the subscribe button. The Newbie Dentist podcast is now available on Spotify, YouTube, and on the website at newbiedentist.com. Without further delays, I hope you guys enjoyed this great interview with Dr. Kim. Hello, and welcome to the Newbie Dentist Podcast, the safe place for newbie dentists to connect, collaborate, learn, and grow. The Newbie Dentist Podcast aims to provide high-quality and high-value content for all the newbie dentists out there. With your host, Dr. Omer Azami. Okay, so I'm here with uh, Dr. Ji-Hun Kim, who is based out of uh, Bellevue and Tacoma, Washington, uh, Disking Queen on Instagram, who's you know kindly given up uh, some of her afternoon to come chat with us and uh, share her experience in dentistry and teaching and, and all the great work that she does clinically. So uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, how we normally start these things off is a bit of an origin story. So if you can take me back a little bit, uh, tell me sort of why you chose to get into dentistry where you went to dental school, and then uh, we'll kind of take things from there. Okay, sure. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Uh, so I started my Instagram journey not too long ago um, in January of uh, this year, yeah. and um, I've been really enjoying it. Actually, it's probably the first time I've actually used social media at all, and uh, one of the things that I really love is being able to reach out and interface with um, you know, dentists, um, sorry, young dentists and uh, students. Yeah. So a little bit about my background. So I graduated from dental school about 20 years ago. I went to the University of Washington School of Dentistry and um, really loved uh, school. I was an older student when I started, so I didn't start right after college. I actually started um, about uh, three years after college. Okay. So I actually was um, a pre-medical student um, when I was in college and I was in the middle of doing my medical school applications and I thought, you know, I'm not sure if I'm ready to do this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, once you start down that road, you're committed. And yeah, that's right. 
right? So I decided to take a break. And of course, coming from an Asian household, there are really only certain allowed paths. <laughs> and so backpacking through Europe was not an option for me. Yeah. Um, so what I did was I actually uh, worked a couple of years doing some research in a um, molecular biology lab. Okay. In the U.S. or abroad? Uh, in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, abroad would have been a lot of fun, but I did it in the U.S. Yeah. And um, sort of long story short, um, after kind of searching around for a little bit, ultimately I decided that I did want to go into some sort of healthcare uh, field. Um, I knew a couple of things. Um, of course, my original fallback was going to be to apply to medical school, but then yeah. I thought, you know, my father was actually a prosthodontist and I never understood why I never considered it before. Yeah. <laughs> so I knew that I wanted to do something with my hands. So I decided to apply to dental school and start at the University of Washington and really enjoyed it. I know dental school can be hard, but yeah. I think for me, taking the break, um, kind of doing a roundabout journey just gave me a little bit more maturity, a little bit more perspective in life so that when things got really hard, what I reminded myself was that, you know what, this is what I want to do. Yeah, I got my wish. It. Yeah, I got my wish. And so it's all good. Excellent. And so what was the experience like? Obviously, you've been out for a, a while now, about 20 years. And it's exciting for me because, you know, normally when we talk to the guests on the podcast, most of them will be sort of in that, you know, one to five year type frames are just kind of like up and coming and, and progressing in their career. So uh, looking back to sort of where you started, did you have sort of like a, a vision of, okay, this is the type of dentistry I want to be doing. This is the type of you know practice I want to be in uh, when you first graduated. And how did that sort of change and evolve after you kind of got, got your feet wet and started working after dental school? Right. Um, I actually kind of feel like I'm in my second career. Uh, so it's really natural for students when they first graduate, there's kind of this known thing. It's about five years before you feel like you're really feel like you've developed some proficiency Yeah. so that you have some confidence when you're in clinic. So I remember early on, I always had to know the night before what my procedures were going to be the next day, just to emotionally prepare myself. Yeah. <laughs> and it was about that five year point where I realized, Oh, I can pretty much just walk in and just face the day and not even think about it. And yeah. so definitely the first five years, it was a matter of um, becoming really confident as a clinician, um, confident not just in terms of clinical skill, but confident in terms of uh, um, managing patients, talking with patients, uh, realizing that you're, you have the honor of treating another human being and yeah. uh, just being able to connect with them. Uh, really, what I wanted out of practice was I wanted um, clinical freedom, meaning I wanted the ability to dictate how I was going to grow. Yeah. Um, and so I was fortunate enough in that I was able to uh, join a practice where it allowed that, but I also had access and um, ability to use a um, surgical microscope from the beginning. So oh, I nice. Could use that. Yeah, I've been using a global microscope for um, since day one, basically. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's funny because when I graduated, we were still mostly taught uh, amalgam restorations. Yeah. Uh, composite really wasn't that yeah. common. And so, um, as you know, with uh, my disc and queen thing, so it's really all compo direct composite restorations. Yeah. And, you know, that's definitely, um, besides progressing as a clinician, um, I developed this unique skill uh, over the last 10 years doing injection over molded composite restorations. And so right now, kind of what I mean by entering a second career is I never really expected to launch into this um, new path of being an educator or a lecturer. Yeah. Because um, I'm actually really, really shy. <laughs> and, and so it's interesting for me to find myself here. I never anticipated this. Yeah, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, that self-growth and, you know, pushing yourself outside your comfort zone is always important as well. So um, I think it's really awesome that you've kind of have been doing that for the past little bit and, and growing that, you know, teaching side of it. Are you currently like a, uh, like a uh, demonstrator in dental school or are you actually like teaching uh, academically as well? Uh, so I actually don't have um, official ties to the University of Washington. So yeah. after I graduated, I was a associate uh, uh, faculty member for about two years, um, just yeah. one of the part-time clinical instructors there. 
Um, I left that position and then um, for about the last eight years, I was teaching mostly outside of or within the Biocore Learning Center. So I was the director, co-director at the Learning Center and I developed that curriculum. Uh, I left that position this year. Um, I should say, you know, I really enjoyed uh, my time there in terms of developing the curriculum and teaching, but I think that I felt like I hit a plateau in terms of um, being able to follow a more creative path. And I think that you reach a certain point in your career in your life where you really want to just continue to be inspired and continue to grow. That's so right. I would say that that's really important in anyone's career as they're launching into it is that, you know, you, if you don't continue to grow, if you don't continue to challenge yourself, then you stagnate or you become really bored. Yeah. <laughs> that's a big thing to say. If you're not growing, you're dying. So I think that's important to, to keep that. So you mentioned a great thing about the, you know, the first five years of your career being sort of the, the major growing curve and kind of getting comfortable clinically. I remember when I was in dental school, you know, just listening to, you know, various different dental podcasts and things as well. And everyone kept saying, you know, the first two years is so important. It's like going to set the the tone and trajectory of your career and stuff. So I put a lot of sort of pressure and stress on myself in the first couple of years of, okay, if if it's not going well now, then, you know, my career is going down and and things aren't going to go well. So for dental students or, you know, young grads listening, what is your sort of advice in terms of how to maximize the first couple of years, uh, be it, you know, finding mentorship or courses or you know, various like CPD programs? What did you find to be the most effective way to kind of you know, maximize the first few years of your career to really, you know, get off and uh, get going? Sure. Um, I think that dental school, just understandably, the way that they teach, it's a disease-driven model. So students come out learning how to do single-tooth dentistry. Yeah. And I think that what I intuitively understood, even though I didn't really identify it as such, what I intuitively understood was that I didn't understand enough about the masticatory system as a whole. And so for the first uh, three to four years, I actually devoted a lot of my CE to um, uh, occlusion studies. Yeah. So I pursued, I did uh, Dawson Academy, I did um, Koi Center, um, and then I also did Spear um, Education. Uh, A lot of my focus and interest being uh, occlusion-driven, functional occlusion, and then from there, having a better understanding about uh, uh, just global aesthetics or facially generated treatment planning, just depending on which, uh, you know, center, which education, right, you've been in. (laughs) And I think that um, it's good to do all of those programs, but I do think you do have to have the clinical experience to tie in with it because on, when you're just learning everything didactically, if you don't have the clinical experience to apply it, it takes a little yeah. bit longer for that Great light point. bulb to go off. So um, definitely it was um, a few years of investment before I started seeing enough in my patients in terms of recares and seeing how they were progressing, what some of my failures were that all of a sudden things started to click. Yeah. So you do have to be patient <laughs> to let the knowledge grow. Yeah, and, and that's something I'm, you know, I'm realizing now. I uh, worked for about a year in Canada before I moved back to Australia. And one of the regrets was, you know, you're not around to kind of see your recalls and see how your work's kind of going. So you have that, uh, I think what they call it, like geographic success where everything that kind of worked right. out. Uh, now that I've, you know, I'm, I've been in Australia, I've been working for, you know, about a year and a half here, two years, and I'm seeing some of the recalls and how things are holding up and how some things aren't. And I think that's something that only just comes with time that, you know, regardless of the courses you do or you're, you're trying to be minimally uh, invasive and doing your onlays and things, uh, in principle and in theory, all of these things might be good, but you're not, if you're not going to be around to actually see how things hold up, you know, two years, five years, 10 years, uh, I think that's when really that growth and learning comes where you see how things are holding up. Um, you mentioned Koi, so I'm actually coming over to Seattle in December. So like in probably three weeks time to do the first two modules. Okay, um, so t- tell me a little bit about how Koi's was and, and sort of what your experiences were with that program. Um, I think that uh, it's really kind of personality driven in terms of whether you really click with Coise uh, or whether you click with uh, Spear. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people that really enjoy Coise's. Um, the ones that really feel like they want a very specific protocol. 
Yeah. Um, and he is very good at um, providing protocol and methodologies and um, just giving you a really good um, schematic that you can apply into your office right away. Um, I think that, um, you know, Spear is great because he's an amazing storyteller and yeah. he is, I see him as being a little bit more like providing the overall framework for me to think of all the pieces and how they fit. Yeah. Um, Kois is really good for application. Um, I think that it depends on what kind of learner you are. Um, I think that learning all the little bits and pieces um, is great, but if you don't understand the overall framework, it's hard to apply it. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean there. Yeah, I've uh, I've I've done some Spear online, and he's a great teacher. You can definitely see how he's just giving you the understanding of what the actual like root of the issues are um rather than just follow this this and this and just you'll get the outcome that way so um i think maybe yeah, a combination of the two might be a kind of a good way of approaching it uh one thing that I've, I've learned from you know different guests that i've had on the podcast is like the importance of like structure like once you graduate and once you start learning uh if you're just doing like one-off courses here there it might not all tie in together necessarily too well um but if you're doing like a nice protocol or a nice uh, you know, curriculum-based, module-based uh, CPD course, uh, whatever it may be. I think that's probably the better way of, of learning something like comprehensively to actually uh, be able to like a- apply it into your clinical practice, which is uh, which is great. Yeah, I mean, I think that I mean you can't go wrong with either. I do, I do know that one of the uh, appeal of Spirit Education is the fact that they have a really robust online uh, learning module. Huge, yeah. Um, because it is really difficult. I mean, cause you said you're coming here for the t- first two courses I mean, yeah. you have yet a little bit of, um, um, uh, sort of learning fatigue. You can only yeah. take in so much. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can you're barely get through a one hour lecture. Over, so I, right? <laughs> I need to be on a IV of a Red Bull or something. <laughs> yeah. Especially with the jet lag and everything. <laughs> um, so let's, uh, if you don't mind, let's uh, talk a little bit about clinical stuff as well. I mean, I've had, uh, you know, Davey Allman, uh, junior, who's, you know, you know, the biomimetic dentistry sure. principles and things. Um, and I know perhaps there might be some, I don't know about clash, but just different philosophy maybe with like the injection molding techniques versus mm-hmm. like the, you know, very incremental I, layering of right. biomimetics. Mm-hmm. So what's your thoughts? Cause I mean, practical, I mean, for most general dentists in terms of, you know, be it in the U.S. because of the insurance reimbursements or corporate or even in Australia, the amount of time and reimbursement, you don't necessarily have the time to spend like an hour and a half, two hours doing like one molar restoration with like pure biomimetic principles. So um, looking at other restorative options such as injective molding where it can like perhaps if you're doing it properly, you'd be more efficient um, and get a great result at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm just curious in terms of like, I'm sure you've had this debate with other people in terms of the two sort of philosophies of, of restoring sure. teeth, uh, what your thoughts are on that? Um, okay. You're going to get me on my soapbox. I actually, <laughs> I actually don't think we are that far apart. I know that they might disagree. Yeah. I don't think we are that far apart. So I think that um, in principle, I think that what we're both trying to do is provide really good patient outcomes. Yeah. And when you really break it down and you go through all of the the protocol, the steps that we are both following, um, you know, we're both advocating for, um, basically proper isolation, carbonate isolation. We're both advocating for, um, conservative, um, you know, dentistry, direct dentistry versus, Mm -hmm. you know, indirect. Uh, we are both advocating for, um, um, uh, let's see, having a good perimeter seal, having, uh, you know, no carries at the DEJ to make sure we get a good perimeter seal. Yeah. We are both talking about following protocols for immediate dent sealing. Uh, we are both talking about, uh, you know, making sure that we are completely, you know, clean of the tooth really well so that we get good, you know, bond strength in the dent and enamel. Yeah. Um, so, and of course, you know, making sure that uh, we follow um, really robust uh, curing protocols. So when you really break it down, I think that there's a lot of commonality. Um, I think that you know one of the main things is really about um, how we're utilizing composite, how we're handling it, the number of layers. And so um, I still talk about layering. It's just that the way that I layer, it's not horizontal layers um, or, you know, oblique layers. What I'm doing is kind of more what I call concentric layering. So I'm doing um, internal blockout. 
with foldable. Yeah. And then I'm making sure that the outer layer is monolithic, you know, for a couple of reasons. Um, one of it is for to have a seamless um, outer crust. Yeah, uh, which provides for I think better monolithic strength, but also for um, a more resilient uh, finish where it has better stain resistance, it has uh, fewer defects, mm -hmm. um, and it has better abrasion resistance. Yeah. Um, so all in all, I don't think that there's a whole lot of difference in terms in terms of the practicality. One of the reasons why I talk about injection molding or injection over molding is because. I think that in terms of skill acquisition, it's easier. Yeah. I think if uh, a clinician is able to come to learn it and is, you know, they can acquire their skill during a hands-on course and then they can go to their office on Monday morning, start applying it. It just means that their ability for that skill to um, grow into a, uh, to a level of proficiency or mastery, I think is going to be better, which means that they'll actually do it. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of practicality within um, your office uh yeah it's going to be faster because you're not doing you know eight to 16 layers for a moderate <laughs> size restoration yeah <laughs> i mean we have to be practical right um yeah. because if it becomes so cumbersome to do then i think that the fallback for clinicians is going to be to do an indirect restoration which is frankly it's easier to do destructive dentistry it's more profitable yeah and i think that's the wrong goal that's for sure. So maybe we should have, I may preface this a little bit. So can you just talk through injection molding technique? Sort of, mm -hmm. I know it's hard, it may be tough over like audio, obviously, but uh, if you just give us like a quick overview of like, you know, if you're doing like a class two on a like, on a lower molar, sort of what the prints, like how you would do it sequence wise. Uh, so I think that with, okay, let me break it out. So injection molding, just in terms of how we're handling the composite is, First of all, we work with warmed composite yeah. for um, decreasing the viscosity and having better flow. So mm -hmm. if you think about composite not as a packing material, not as an amalgam substitute, but if you think of it more as an injectable, the, the reality is that composite acts more like a fluid, whether it's warmed or not. It's not going to stay contained within a box. Yeah. Uh, the other issue is that because of the decrease in contrast um, between the two, so white on white versus black on white, yeah. it's really hard to manage any sort of ledges or overhangs, especially in the subgingival interproximal yeah. areas. So what we're doing is instead of fighting it, we're basically promote, um, promoting it. So we're warming the composite in order to increase the flowability. Um, now, in order to accommodate that, we want to make sure that we clean all of the tooth, not just what's right within the cavity prep, but the outside of the tooth as well. Um, so is that so with our, a bev like beveling or are you just like micro etching it or, uh, both. Yeah. So in terms of the line angles, rather than having a sharp 90 degree line angle, we're going to create a proximal flare or a proximal bevel to allow that composite to wrap around. And so mm -hmm. we're, we're finishing the composite is actually almost like mid buckle, mid lingual area where it's much easier to finish rather than trying to chisel away at the interproximal area. Yeah. Um, and then, um, in terms of the number of layers, so once we do the meat dent and sealing, and once we um, use um, you know flowable or something to do the dent and replacement to try and mitigate some of the C factor issues, mm -hmm. then the outer layer is monolithic. Now, in order to make it work even better, um, what we're doing is we're um, changing the tooth preparation. So instead of a boxy preparation where we're really maximizing dent engagement and minimizing how much enamel we're bonding to. Um, we're um, doing only caries removal in the dentin, and then we're essentially wrapping the tooth as much as possible yep. in composite on enamel. And it's, we're trying to have it be more compression driven instead of tension driven. Okay. Yeah. I know it's hard without diagrams. Yeah, visual aids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Maybe I'll. Um, if you have, if there, I think there's. I've seen some YouTube videos and stuff on obviously the techniques. So I'll, I'll put it in the show notes for anyone listening if they want to go check it out later on. Uh, sure. Just to get a better visual idea as well. To me, I was like, okay, maybe the concern with depth of the depth of cure is the main issue with like you know bigger increments. Uh, sure. But for the biomedic guys, it was more the yeah, like the shrinkage and the pulling on the you know, existing bond underneath that layer of composite. So right. how is that sort of 
overcome? Is it do you do you allow a certain time for like bond maturity with your immediate dentine ceiling before you move on to the next increments and things like the biomedic kind of way or um, uh, no? You haven't found no. any issues there. No, I mean I think that really if you think about uh, a lot of the issues that clinicians have is is there's usually three things. There's uh, recurrent caries at the gingival margin, yeah. uh, sensitivity, um, and chipping at the marginal ridge. Okay. So as far as uh, recurrent caries at the gingival margin and, um, you know, because we're allowing the composite to flow and we're actually, instead of marginating the composite, we're allowing it to, uh, extend past the margin and yeah. creating a greater zone of a perimeter seal that's bonded to, to clean enamel. That's one way that issue is managed. Yeah. Um, the issue of um, sensitivity, so the C-factor issue, which is really where when you get some um, shrink of the composite and you start uh, infuriating those uh, dental tubules, yeah. that's mitigated by the fact that you know we're doing immediate dentin sealing. And then, you know, like I said, I'm going to use flowable to do internal blockout if I have a boxy preparation. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm changing the preparation so it's a much shallower preparation without any um, without parallel sided walls. So it's a much yeah. flatter. So think of it more like take a class three um, rest, uh, preparation on the anterior tooth, yeah, and turn it on its side. Okay. So that's what yeah. our preparations would look like. Yeah. Um, so it's like a shallow, far, like pool, like a right. like a skate ramp type thing. Yeah. Right. Right. So it's uh, different from a slot preparation in that it uh, comes up over the occlusal surface so that that part's in compression. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as marginal ridge shipping, because the outer layer is monolithic rather than having it be layered, it's when we actually manipulate the composite a lot that we start um, introducing seams within the composite yeah. versus having monolithic strings. So if you think about indirect restorations, what's the trend right now in the indirect world? Uh, like Emacs? Yeah, I mean, well, the trend is, is it oh, more towards milled, milled yeah. you know, is it milled monolithic, monolithic milled restorations, or is it still layered restorations? Um, well, I think most people are doing milled because they're doing it in office, if they're doing a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And I would say a lot of people, when you ask them and they say that they do milled restorations and you ask them why, they would say, well, part of it is for strength. Yeah. Monolithic. So essentially what I'm creating in the mouth is um, sort of monolithic hand milled restoration directly <laughs> in the mouth. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, I, I mean, I, I think the system makes a lot of sense. Like you said, once you learn it, it's less technique sensitive to like reproduce it over and over, which I think is, is pretty handy just for the average, average dentist in terms of fees and time and everything that you got to commit to it. Um, and I, I like what you said in terms of the commonalities of it's still good dentistry because you're still doing your like rubber dam or your isolation and um, mm-hmm. following the proper like bonding protocols and all that as well. So uh, I think it might be a more universal approach than the like strict biomimetic kind of principle for like restoring teeth um, just right. for, for the average dentist and their average hands. Sure. I mean, and I know that they would probably say, well, I mean, basically the average clinician should strive, you know, for something higher. And I guess my point on that is, you know what, just because every clinician cannot be a, cannot go and climb Mount Everest doesn't mean that they shouldn't go for a hike. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I really respect, you know, all those clinicians that do, you know, pure biomimetics or, I mean, you see some of the masters where they do these incredible, you know, anterior rehabilitations, you know, with layer composites, you know, that's great because they have the skill and because their practice model supports that. Yeah. That's a big factor, especially for, you know, young dentists who are just associates as well like you said earlier on, you, you don't necessarily always have that freedom to do it how you want to do it. You're going to, you're kind of within the confines of how that practice operates and the the type of patients and clientele and stuff that come through as well. So maybe something to, you know, try and grow towards as you maybe get your own place and, and do it that way. The other interesting, you know, I, I love that idea with like the Everest and hiking, uh, because I, I'm very fascinated by that. Just obviously in any profession like that, you know, standard curve of there's going to be clinicians that are outstanding. There's going to be the average kind of lump of clinicians. And then obviously some, unfortunately that are a little bit below standard. Now that you do a lot of teaching, now that you work with a lot of like dental students, like, uh, you know, Brandon Walker, you mentioned possibilities who have uh, had on the podcast as well. What do you think is some of the main, either like personality traits or key factors that make people kind of throughout their career, you know, reach that new height and, and become into that like one or two standard deviations above like the average dentist. Mm-hmm. 
I, I think it has more to do with internal drive. Yeah. I mean, I would say that even for me at this point in my career, I'm never actually satisfied with yeah. everything that I do. I mean, I, I will have some cases where I'm like, okay, that was a good case, but there's always something I can improve. Yeah. And so I'm, you know, really my, my worst critic, as they say, and, um, I, knowing, knowing that there's a human on the other side, I mean, I really try to my best to do the best that I can. And I know that, you know, sometimes it's just difficult. You can't, um, I think that some people true, besides just having, uh, better manual dexterity i think that because there is that artistic side and dentistry as well some people lack the um that visual skill yeah um, that artistic skill uh, it doesn't mean that you can't ever get to the point of just doing good basic dentistry um it just means that like i'm not going to be newton fall or Robert, you, know, <laughs> you know some of the other masters out there that's, yeah. that's you know that means but I yeah. still like myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, uh, that's, it's true. I think, you know, obviously Instagram has so many Instagram dentistry has a lot of pros because you get to see, you know, all the, you know, outstanding work that people are doing kind of around the world you know, to motivate yourself and kind of uh, keep raising the standard. I think getting involved in that has been really good too. Because even for myself, uh, I look back at my, some of the stuff I was posting, like maybe, you know, two years ago and comparing it to what I'm doing now. I'm, you know, the work I'm doing now is still very, average but before that it was like below average so i think just the taking you know taking pictures of your work um and trying to like you said have that internal motivation to be like no i want to get better i want to get better day by day um is a pretty pretty cool thing that we have right now that maybe dentists like you know 20 years ago 30 years ago didn't have because yeah. it'll just be in their practice doing their own thing day by day and not really uh having that uh reflection to see if they're actually improving or not which is right. I mean, I, I, as you just mentioned, photography, I mean, I really do, besides investing in magnification, mm-hmm. I do really encourage people to invest in a good camera, Yeah. learn how to use it, because I, I think it's having that immediate feedback, you know, because I document my cases, you know, pre-op, during the procedure and post-op, and then there's a lot that you miss when you're just looking at it um, in real time yeah. versus being able to put it on the screen and, you know, evaluating it with more objectively yeah looking back and zooming in on the uh on the preps and, <laughs> and yeah. everything yeah it's pretty humbling sometimes yeah. uh, so tell me a little bit about obviously you know having been doing dentistry for 20 years you've had obviously those ups and downs in your day-to-day career or procedures that don't go well uh, and i have a lot of classmates of my i mean classmates of mine who you know we're like three two three years out now there's a lot of burnout there's a lot of sort of kind of stress and some people are just kind of starting to get over it a little bit. Um, how does that longevity come into play? Like, is there strategies of how you cope with, you know, like a tough situation clinically or a bad outcome that's kind of helped you keep going and, and pushing on? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that you have to maintain perspective. Um, you know, we've all had failures. Um, you know, as you said, I work with um, students and I work with some young clinicians and, you know, I, I know that feeling when you do something and it's not the best outcome and you basically kick yourself about it. Yeah. And um, the only thing I can tell them is, you know, this really literally happens to all of us. And as much as what I'm going to say right now means absolutely nothing, you're still going to kick yourself about it for, yeah. you know, the next week and it'll diminish over time. You know, just realizing that it's always going to be a work in process, progress because school basically just teaches you, um, basic competency. Yeah. It's not meant to make you proficient. Proficiency comes later. Yeah. Um, so I think giving yourself a little bit of forgiveness. And one of the things that I always really kind of harp on is do not, I mean, unless it's really, it really is a matter of gross negligence. Do not judge your fellow professionals Yeah. because until you've actually, unless you were there in that clinical situation, working with that patient, you know, you don't know. I think that the more you, for me, the more I practice, the more humble I become. Yeah. Because I, you're doing microsurgery on a patient yeah. that's not sedated. In a tough <laughs> environment. And yeah. Right, right. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult, uh, you know, dance that you're doing. Yeah. With, with it's basically three of you, at least. Yeah. <laughs> So no, I think that's a great tip. And I don't know why that is. I think it's a bit of a sad part of the profession is a lot of dentists tend to bag on the other dentists um, to the patient. Like they'll be like, wow, this is terrible. Or like, I don't see why 
that's become a thing in some in some mm-hmm. uh, areas of dentistry. Um, and it's a great point you make because I, I mean, early on I learned not to do that, and luckily I had some mentors and stuff to always say, you know, never, unless you see something like negligent, like you said, don't actively tell the patient, oh, this is bad because you don't know necessarily if you could replicate it. And there's been right. restorations where I've seen, I'm like, oh, that looks terrible. And then I go to replace it and I'm struggling. And I'm like, oh, I can see why like, that was the way it was. Uh, right. So I think if you'd said something to the patient, then you kind of get yourself in a bit of uh, a tough spot that way as well. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, right. that humility is important for sure. So any, uh, any other general you know, tips for, for young dentists coming through in terms of sort of what you've seen like emerging trends uh where they should focus clinically is it more just stick to restorative is there uh, is there a scope to should we jump into learning like like ortho or invisalign or should we learn implants what's like the biggest like roi you think you've got um in the early part of your career from uh, obviously you mentioned occlusion being a huge part of it but anything else uh, outside of the restorative dentistry um i think that um, I personally don't do surgery because I know that, that a lot of general dentists do. They like to place implants. Um, for me, at least with where I practice, I have some excellent uh, surgeons. And so I feel like if I do the surgery, I'm um, maybe denying the patient better care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I would say that two things. I think that um, having a good uh, understanding of and then being able to do some basic orthodontics in yeah. your practice. Um, I think that that's a really good tie with restorative dentistry yeah. um, in terms of being more conservative. As long as you understand um, the limitations in terms of you know, the scope of your limitations. So, I mean, anything that's really more difficult and you're really changing, altering someone's occlusion, I mean, I still think that that would best be served by um, a specialist. And yeah. I think that for me, it's really um, working really closely with um, the local specialists and developing a more collaborative relationship because at least with the specialists I work with, um, I refer to them, but they also refer cases to me yeah. uh, because they know the particular skill that I have and in terms of what I can do with additive dentistry. Um, so everyone's really, the big topic now is airway dentistry, Yeah. right? And so one of the things about that is, um, you know, the orthodontist, ideally, sometimes they can get a better occlusal scheme if they open up spaces. Yeah. But they're kind of trained to close spaces and to sort of constrict people. And so when they know that there's a restorative option to do something additive, I think that that empowers them to do something that maybe overall health is better for the patient. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, I really enjoy those kinds of collaborations with um, my specialists. That's really cool. And I think that having that relationship is really important, like you mentioned, um, and a great tip for new guys, because I think a lot of times we'll just refer out. We're not really sure who the person is. We haven't actually like met them face to face or gone to see their practice and see what they're doing. And uh, one good tip I actually recently uh, received from one of my mentors was, you know, if whatever it is, if it's endo that you want to get better at, or if it's implants or wisdom teeth, whatever, maybe like make a policy with your referring specialist that if you refer a case that you actually go and watch them do that um, treatment on your patient as a good learning tool. Uh, Cause you've, you've treatment, you've diagnosed it, you've kind of treatment planned it, you've referred it off and then just try and make the time to go over and, and see them do the actual procedure on that patient. Yeah. And I, that's uh, absolutely true. Way. Yeah. I mean, I would say, I would say a couple, I had a couple of early on um, bad uh, clinical situations mm-hmm. and um, part of it was just um, uh, being, being young and being naive. And so um, I, I, came out and uh, decided just to do a general restorative practice. And so I kind of held the specialist to a little bit of a higher ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that one of the things that, uh, you know, Frank Spear talks about is it really shouldn't be a tiered relationship. It should be more like you're the generalist and then they're the specialist. I mean, you have your own specialty in restorative dentistry. Yeah. Because I can tell you, most of your endodontists do not want to have to do any restorative dentistry, (laughs) even though I encourage that. And so what I did was I had referred a a couple of patients and had deferred to the specialists. And you have to remember, as a general dentist, you have to be the quarterback. And so the cases did not go well because I gave the specialists a little bit too much, um, a little bit too much uh, freedom, a little bit too much... uh, um, uh, 
or should like I say, leeway uh, professional, professional discretion and yeah. realize that no, actually the specialists don't always know everything um, in terms of how to um, achieve the best outcome for the patient. Yeah. So, you know, for me, that just taught me that even if I'm uh, disagreeing with who I thought was kind of like my mentor, my higher up, that basically I'm doing it for the patient's mm-hmm. um, best interest. That's a great point. I haven't, I haven't had anyone say that before. I think that makes a lot of sense because you're as a quarterback, you're the one that's seen the overview of the whole case, especially if you've you know put in the time that you did to learn like you know right. full mouth occlusion and restorative. So the the specialist, whatever if it's the endodontist or periodontist doing implant, whatever it may be, um, they're really focused on that one thing. So they might not necessarily have that same knowledge of the overview of everything going on that you would do. So um, I think that's a great point. I think I'll yeah. I mean, I, th- I that think that you know yeah. Yeah, I think initially when we come out, you know, we're a little bit intimidated, right? For sure. Um, but yeah. the thing is that um, at least, you know, I think that most of the specialists that you, if you ask them, if you work with them, they're really happy to mm-hmm. discuss cases with you and to actually teach you. And yeah. then it becomes more of a collaborative back and forth learning effort. Yeah, that's awesome. No, that's a great tip. Um, and what about uh, study clubs and things? Is that something that you've used, utilized a lot in your career or? Uh, yeah, so I always uh, was I was always part of a study club. So um, in the first uh, half of my career, I was um, I did a couple of study clubs. One of which was um, a Seattle study club. Oh yeah. Um, and then after that, I um, right now currently I'm part of a Spear study club and um, a study club with my uh, periodontist. So he has a study club. So a lot of your specialists will have certain yeah. study clubs that they run. Yeah. That's awesome. No, I think that's super cool. And like you said, that second career that you're having like 20 years in, a lot of people are just kind of plateaued and, and just set in their ways and kind of just winding things down a little bit. Uh, for you to have kind of had this like resurgence and uh, you know, motivation to get on social media, get on Instagram, start you know, posting your cases and growing. Um, and I see you've, um, what is it that you've started here? The, the template, the small design gauge. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that project. Uh, so actually that came about because, um, I told you that early on in my career, I went and did Dawson. I did yeah. Dawson courses. And one of the things that, um, I learned there was about, um, um, sort of building occlusal schemes, building anterior aesthetics. And so I took all the hands-on courses and I still do all of my diagnostic wax ups so is kind of like oh, what nice. I do with yeah. watching TV. And so one of the things that I came away with when we did that was, um, we learned how to do as a starting point for building the anterior side, I've seen it using a golden proportion rule. Mm-hmm. And that's always my starting point, but it's not necessarily my final end point because there's a lot of different proportionalities that exist, you know, in the population. Yeah. But when I started uh, doing a lot more um, injection over molded restoration, so what happens is because you're using these matrices, these matrices are creating the form, mm-hmm. uh, you need to be able to make decisions about, um, the width of the teeth, the proportionality of the teeth. And what I wanted was the um, ability to skip the um, sort of the lab smile design phase. Yeah. um, And just to go straight to a chair side smile design phase. And so what I needed was something that I could use interorally. Yeah. So the smile design gauge, it basically has six sides, one blank side for using con- just in contrast photography. Yeah. The other five sides are based off five different central incisor widths. Okay. And it's really just um, to help you to see the mesial to distal spread of the smile. And um, I do with that, I can do my diagnostic workup with photography. Yeah. It becomes a really good communication tool. So I use it to communicate and make proposals to my patients, I also use it to communicate with my orthodontist. Yeah. So all the orthodontists, you know, they'll say, okay, so if you've got underside lateral incisors, where do you want me to put it? Mm-hmm. Well, you can take a photo or he can take a photo. You can communicate with that. Yeah. Um, and then when you're executing your case, it's a ruler. You're using it as a ruler, actually chair side. That's a nice tool. Cause I think a lot of times now we take pictures and we have like those um, templates on like a PowerPoint or a keynote or something that we can just kind of drag. But I, I think the value of it, one is like intro opportunity. You can like use it as well and just to check and see how you're going with your buildups and um, right. yeah, super cool. So is this uh you can, you can buy this online just on the website or. Uh, yeah. So um, you can right now um, the only place that it's available is um, with BioClear. Okay. Yeah. And then I'm kind of working on another project sort of related to that. Yeah. 
Okay, cool. So I'll put a link on that as well. If anyone listening wants to have a look at those and check them out, uh, definitely a great tip uh, tool. Okay, so uh, thanks a lot. We covered a lot there. We covered sort of some early career tips and, and tricks to kind of get going, um, including like, you know, full mouth occlusion courses. I think occlusion is huge. I kept, you know, you keep hearing about occlusion and stuff in dental school. Um, and yeah, you get your like, you know, MIP and CR and and guidances, but that stuff doesn't really mean much until you kind of get the bigger overview of how things are kind of fitting together and forming and functioning all um, in unison. And when you try to expand your clinical skill set beyond like that single tooth dentistry to full mouth, uh, I think it's really important kind of knowledge base to have. And I think it comes across when you when you learn the stuff and you start talking to the patient that everything clicks and you can show them like the wear facets and how things are actually fitting together like a jigsaw, which is pretty cool as well. It's yeah. like a, a bit of a detective uh, journey, which is, which is yeah. always fun. So, yeah. Well, the thing about uh, the mouth is that it ultimately has to be functional, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter how pretty the car is if it doesn't run. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, um, before we jump into the just quick rapid fire to, um, end things off, anything else you want to mention or anything else you want to put out for the uh, listeners? Uh, I think really just, um, I mean, just philosophically, just, uh, you know, really stay curious and stay active and, um, uh, you know, in dentistry, you have a lot of different avenues, a lot of different, uh, um, avenues that you can pursue. And so instead of just getting stuck in the rut and thinking, you know, losing interest, find a, find a different path. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think that's, yeah, that search is important. Really see, because you might, you know, even I've been working such a brief time, but, uh, you know, one month I'm like, oh, I really like surgery. One month I'm like, oh, I like endo. So I, I think it might just take time to really get enough reps in each thing to be like, okay, I really actually do like this. And I want to really try and, you know, improve um, on this kind of one or two procedures. Right. Um, and, and thousand hours and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. Awesome. So uh, how I end, uh, end these off is just a quick, fun uh, rapid fire just to uh, wrap up. So what's your uh, favorite pizza topping? My favorite pizza topping? Yeah. Oh, uh, I would say um, I'm kind of more of a carnivore, so meat. Meat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's your, uh, what's your favorite uh, like band, artist, or musician? Um, oh, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I have a really eclectic, strange uh, taste in music, so I really yeah. don't have a favorite one. Favorite so it's one. pretty much if someone sends me a song, that may be my favorite one for about a week. <laughs> yeah. What do you uh, What do you listen to at work? Is it just radio, or you have like certain? Uh, yeah, at work is just radio, so I get to suffer whatever the front office uh, person chooses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your What's your favorite uh, Instagram account to follow? Like dental um, or non dental. Oh, well, some of my favorite ones. Oh, I love uh, Dentinal Tube. I love um, yeah. Ryan Noland. Um, yeah. I love Possibilities. Um, I love um, Rafael Sampaiko. He's amazing. Uh, some of his, um, you know, I, I always like to follow him and uh, just the anterior reconstructions that he does. Um, I, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think here. So in terms of all the ones that I check all the time. Um, uh, um see i'm facing out on the name so i like um <laughs> ashley zadi um okay. i like um uh who else here um amanda c is always amazing yeah um i love uh i don't check it all the time but of course miguel ortiz i love his um yeah. you know proselyte um i just go back and check that every once in a while mm -hmm. um photography yeah yeah, just anything. I love anything that gives me um, like all the sort of nerdy dental material stuff. Yeah, not just, <laughs> not just before and afters, but more kind right. of process process driven. Right, uh, and then the other ones are people that basically give you some you know aesthetic you know um, you know something that's beautiful, just that's aspirational. Yeah, for sure. Now, uh, what's your favorite tooth to work on? My favorite tooth to work on. Um, actually, I would say anterior teeth and bicuspids <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh what's uh what's one procedure that kind of makes you question your career choice in dentistry when you have to do it oh um gosh i would say surgery i really don't like doing extractions extractions <laughs> at all i i will run away from extractions if at all yeah. possible <laughs> and uh if you, if you weren't doing dentistry uh, what career would you be in 
if I wasn't doing dentistry, actually, I probably would have been um, in medicine doing uh, surgery. Surgery. So, yeah, still it's funny how in, in dentistry you don't want to do surgery, but otherwise. I know, I know, right? I mean, I think if it was like isolated to like an eyeball <laughs> or something like that, I think it'd be okay. Nothing, not something really big and gross like the joints. I don't want to do yeah. that. Yeah, and and luckily <laughs> they'd be asleep probably, so you don't have to deal with. Right. That. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> awesome thank you so much for coming on it was a lot of fun uh, chatting with you and uh, picking your brain on you know various topics and things um it's always fun to get a little bit clinical as well and talk about uh, like we did with the um, injection molding technique and things so i'll definitely put some uh, resources for people to check those out listening and uh, yeah so definitely check out dr kim's work um at disking queen on instagram actually we didn't talk about any disking so uh what made what's uh, made you come up with that um instagram handle Oh, um, that moniker actually, it was, uh, it was sort of a, a term of affection that was given to me by, um, Mark Konings, who's a friend of mine. Yeah. And so he was, um, spent a lot of time at the learning center teaching. And what I did was when I was teaching at the learning center, I kind of developed this disking protocol. Okay. So I actually have a webinar it's, um, with a, that I did with 3M and it's like creating microaesthetics and anterior restorations. And it's all sort of based around using the Softflex disc. And yeah. um, because I use that as like a um, multifunctional tool. So it's yeah. kind of like a milling tool and then it's a shaping tool and then it's a refining tool. And well, yeah. yeah. And so like I, every time people want to take a burr to the anterior, I like they slap their hands because <laughs> <laughs> like, no, 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 don't do that. Use the yeah. disc. And so that was kind of how it came about because I was wielding the disc and, and using it for a lot of different things. Yeah. So I had a dental student, um, um, uh, Esther Dental, Esther Dental. So she's uh, one of the students that um, you know is at the school as well. So yeah. she was really funny. I was, she was quizzing me about what I use for um, uh, heme control. Yeah. And I would say, well, you know, use some ferric sulfate or use some, you know, aluminum, you know, whatever. Right. And she goes, <laughs> oh, I just assume that you would have used a disc to cauterize <laughs> the tissue. <laughs> so <Yeah>. anyway, <laughs> yeah, I think this game. It has a, I mean, for the front teeth, it's not so bad, but for posteriors, if you're using it for like removing your flash and things, um, it has a certain dexterity that takes a little bit of time to kind of get down because uh, it is pretty bulky with the mandrel and everything to kind of get the various angles and things. But uh, once you get it out, it, it's hard to replicate that result with like any burr for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming.